Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is John, and I'm a member here. This morning's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 8. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the, the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is God's word for us today. Imagine you were asked to write a book about life. Where would you begin? What would you include? What would you not include? What would you write? I think for me, I would feel very overwhelmed and just write one big footnote, see the Bible, you know, especially Ecclesiastes. Because I think Ecclesiastes, that's what Kohelet, the author, was trying to do. He was trying to write a book about life. And of course, we believe that he was inspired to do this, and God gave him wisdom to help us understand what life is all about. Now, today we're going to actually end the words of Kohelet, the author here, the preacher. We still have one more sermon next week. That'll be words about Kohelet, but today we end the words of Kohelet. 
And so as we, as we come to the end, I thought it would be good just to take a few moments to remind ourselves what this book of life has been about, some of the things that he has chosen to include in his observation of life. And this goes back to the very first sermon we preached as the introduction to Ecclesiastes. Remember, there's four main things that he's talking about. He's talking about where we are. This phrase, under the sun, is repeated 29 times in the book. Now, we've talked about how this phrase, under the sun, means more than just on the earth, right? This is the troubled life of humanity in the world against the background of inevitable death. This is life on earth after the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, where we read about God's judgment, specifically his judgment of death. So that's where we are. We're under the sun. Secondly, he talks about what we experience. And he uses three main words almost a hundred times between the three of them to describe our experience as vanity, evil, and trouble. We all can relate, right? This word vanity is a key word. It's, it's, he's repeated it several times to say this is everything in life is, is vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel, and it literally means breath or vapor. And so we've, we've said we have to let Kohelet let us know what he means by this word. What does he mean that life is havel, it's breath, it's vapor? And as we've gone through the book, we've seen that primarily what he means is that life is, is puzzling, sometimes even incomprehensible. We can't quite understand it. And it's frustrating. Sometimes it's very disappointing. Maybe the best definition of this word havel is found in chapter 1, verse 15, where Kohelet says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. The third thing he's focused on is who God is. Who God is. God is mentioned 33 times in this book, and he is the main character of this book. And he's most often described as the giver. What does he give? Well, the first thing he gives is he gives the vanity, evil, and trouble that we experience. Kohelet makes this very clear. Chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God who can straighten what he has made crooked. Those things that are crooked that we cannot straighten out, he has made them crooked. And they will not be straightened out until he straightens them out. But he has a purpose in this. He has a purpose in this. The second thing that God gives is joy. This is a continuous theme throughout the book. We've seen many beautiful portraits of the possibility of living a very joyful life on earth. One of my favorite is chapter 3, verse 12, where Kohelet just says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and do good. I love that picture. This is a great, a great life ambition. Be joyful, do good as long as you live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. The fourth thing he talks about is how we are to respond to God. How are we to respond to God? And the, the theme throughout the book that he's going to conclude with, but we've seen it every week, is we are to fear God. And what does it mean to fear God? Well, it means that we humble ourselves under his judgment. 
We admit our unrighteousness and our foolishness. We trust that He has made everything beautiful in its time, and we live out the commands that He has given us. This is what it means to fear God. This is what it means to have a right relationship to God. And when we have this right relationship with God, we can unwrap God's gift of joy in this life, even in the puzzling, frustrating, evil, and trouble that we experience. So last week, Kohelet began to conclude his words by warning us that this wisdom that he's teaching, that he's recommending, is most often despised and ignored. It's, it's what we called last week saving wisdom that God gives to us, but most people don't accept this wisdom. It's not mainstream. So in chapters 10 and 11, Kohelet gives us some practical proverbial wisdom to help us navigate a world where God's wisdom is despised and foolishness and evil are prized. Chapter 10 last week focused on being shrewd as serpents. It's sort of a wary approach to life that warns us of the dangers of foolishness and how to avoid foolish people and being foolish ourselves. But today in chapter 11, he takes a decidedly positive turn. He turns from being mostly negative and defensive in our approach to life to be more positive and ambitious. He encourages us today to take bold action and make the most of life's opportunities. And he'll teach us this in four final quiet words of the wise. It can be summarized in this. Be generous, be a sower, be joyful, and be godly. This is his conclusion to his book on life. So let's look at these four things. First, be generous, verses 1 to 2. Notice chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, this verse is somewhat confusing. Like, even when you read the verse, like, well, cast your bread upon the waters. What does that mean? Some commentators have even thought maybe he's talking about overseas investments, you know, cast your bread on the ships that go, and then maybe someday your investment will come back. I, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. In fact, traditionally, Jewish authors have, have almost unanimously taught that he is talking about giving to the poor and to the needy. There's something mysterious and illogical about this idea. It seems like Casting your bread on the waters. It seems like a waste. I think that's why he talks about it this way. Cast your bread upon the waters. Giving to the poor who can't repay you seems like a terrible investment. It seems like throwing hard-earned money away. It seems like casting your bread on the water. Bread just gets soggy, sinks to the bottom. It's good for nothing. But he says here, you will find it after many days. And from ancient times, there has been an awareness that God himself takes note of people being generous and giving to the needy, and he responds favorably to the generous giver. Notice Proverbs nineteen seventeen: He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Jesus echoed this in many places. One of the main places in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Jesus said, When you give to the needy, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus emphasized, don't give so that people see you. Don't try to be praised and applauded by people. Be as secret as, it, as you can about it. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing because God sees and God will reward you. You will find it after many days. Proverbs eleven twenty five: the generous man will be prosperous. He who waters will himself be watered. Jesus again in Luke six thirty eight: give and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, we looked at one of the grievous evils that he talked about on earth, and it had to do with people who loved money, and they loved money in such a way that they, they kept it or guarded it to their own hurt. It's the idea of a hoarder, of somebody who just, just is keeping everything for themselves. And so Kohelet is, is recommending a better stance of life, and, and, and to, to view shoo, uh, sharing what you have with others. He says here in verse 2, give a portion to seven or to eight. Be as generous as you can. Now, certainly we're not talking about foolish and irresponsible use of money, but we should try to live so that we can meet our own needs, meet our own expenses, and have some to share with others. This is a generous lifestyle, and this kind of lifestyle is blessed by God. So, be generous. The second thing he says here at the end of his book on life is be a sower. Notice verses 3 through 6. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So the main point of this passage here is sow your seed. You can't reap a harvest if you don't sow. Most people in Kohelet's time were we're farmers. It was an agrarian society. And so he's just saying, look, if you're going to have a harvest, you have to sow, and you can't, be, you can't be paralyzed by calamity or by uncertainty. Notice calamity in verse 3. He's talking about clouds of rain coming and, and trees falling. These are, these are calamities. These are inconveniences that happen in life, things that we can do nothing about. So how do we respond to these things? Well, we keep sowing. We have to keep going. Many of you know I own uh, real estate, I own several rental properties, and I've had several floods, flooded basements and at least four trees fall. In fact, one time we had a tree fall directly on one of our houses right in the middle, put a hole in the roof, knocked down some power lines, the, it started a small fire, you know, the fire department came, it, it was a mess. And you know, we're, we're funny as human beings sometimes, right? When things like these happen, we start to ask questions like, is God mad at me? Like, what did I do? Like, why did this happen to me? Should I have bought this house? Are these really bad tenants? Should I get rid of them? You know, I mean, you ask all these kinds of questions, right? Our minds go crazy. But it was just a tree that fell. Get the chainsaw, cut it up, fix the roof, and move on. You see, don't let 
calamity stop you. Don't let it hinder you. And also, don't let uncertainty stop you. This is what we see in verses 4 through 6. In these verses, you see this phrase, you do not know, repeated four times. Avoid the paralysis of analysis. Conditions will never be perfect and risks will always exist. Give up the luxury of certainty and get on with living. You know, I'm a real estate investor, and over the years I've had many people come up to me and say, Greg, I, I, I'm really interested in, in, in investing in real estate. Would you, would you give me some advice? Would you help me out? I'm just like, sure, 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 you know. And so I'll talk to people, and I've known people who really want to invest in real estate. They're committed to it. They're, so it seems they spend hours looking at properties. They'll make elaborate spreadsheets. They'll crunch the numbers, but they never buy a property. It's the paralysis of analysis. And some people are like that toward life, right? There's uncertainty. There's things I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to come. And so they get paralyzed. See, the smallest of our knowledge, our lack of control, and the likeliness of hard times can paralyze us, but instead, they become reasons to stir ourselves to action and show some spirit. That's what it takes to be a sower. Now, this picture of being a sower is picked up and used extensively in the New Testament by both Jesus and Paul. In fact, Jesus one of his most famous parables was the parable of the sower and the four types of soil. Luke chapter 8, verse 5, he starts his parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. Jesus refers to himself as a sower of the word of God, and he calls us as his followers to be sowers as well. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And I think this phrase in season and out of season is kind of like Kohelet's so in the morning and so in the evening, for we don't know when it's going to prosper. We don't know when the word that we sow will find a good heart to bear fruit in. We just have to be faithful to keep sowing. Now, this is particularly true in, in parenting. If you're a parent here this morning, you need to be a sower of God's word in the lives of your children. Now, certainly our example is way more powerful than our words. But we still must be sharing God's word with our children. We never know when God may touch our children's hearts with his word. My daughter Cora shared her testimony when she became a member here. She shared it publicly, and, and many of you heard that several years ago. And, and, and she says that she, God began to work in her life, and she looks to her conversion during a time of discipline, <laughs> believe it or not. And my wife and I, we would try to always discipline when our kids were disobedient. And I had all of my kids memorize Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, which says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, so it will go well with you, and you will enjoy a long life. You know, So disciplining moments were, were opportunities to talk about this verse and to talk about the gospel. And my daughter Cora said it was in one of those moments that she really began to understand her sin and how her sin separated her from God and how she needed the grace that was found in Jesus Christ. So who would have known, right? Who would have thought that a disciplined situation could be such a fruitful sowing moment? But we just don't know. That's the point. So we just need to sow. Now, the Apostle Paul also uses this sowing imagery in the context of financial giving, of generosity, like we talked about in the first point. 
Notice 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, he says this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I love that picture. So bountifully, and you will reap bountifully. That's Kohelet's encouragement to us. And in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are all sowing something. We must be careful what we sow. Notice Galatians 6, 7, and 9. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And I think that's what Kohelet is encouraging us here today. Be a sower. Don't give up. Morning and night, all times, keep sowing. Keep doing good. Keep sowing to the Spirit. You will reap if you don't give up. So be generous. Be a sower. Thirdly, be joyful. We knew Kohelet was going to get to this, right? Be joyful. He's, he's nearing the conclusion of his book, and he focuses in on being joyful. Notice verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And all God's children in Wisconsin said, amen, amen right? <laughs> we probably enjoy the sunshine more than those people in California and Florida anyway, because we see it so little, right? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. But like the sun... There are many pleasant things in life that are meant to be enjoyed. Do you know this, friend? God wants you to enjoy life. Notice verse 8. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. The sun doesn't always shine. There will be many dark days, but there is still the potential of joy. And he says here, even although all that comes is vanity, this is a key to understanding joy, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes. Joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Joy and vanity are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist. They must coexist. Your life will be filled with vanity, with, with Havel. It will be puzzling. It will be incomprehensible. It will be frustrating. There, at times, it will be disappointing. And in the end, you will die. But you can rejoice in the midst of all of it. How can you find this joy? Kohelet gives us the key in his closing admonition to the young. And this is the final thing he says. I think it's the most important thing he says. I think it's how he wants to end his argument. And he says, be godly. Notice verses 9 through 12, 1, starting with verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days 
of your youth. Now, as Kohelet concludes his book about life, he's pointing us once again and finally to God. He directs his comments particularly to the youth, which probably, in, when he was writing, probably meant somewhere between the age of 15 and 35. So there's quite a range there. This is the time of life when we experience, our experience of life is most vivid, and we are setting the direction of our lives. It's possible for older people to remember God in their old age, but we, we, we know statistically that most people, when they become a Christian, it usually happens at, in this time frame, in their youth. That's where we usually, our direction is set. So it's an especially important time to remember your Creator and know that God will judge your actions. Now, some people see a contradiction in verse 9. Notice this. He tells the young man uh, what every parent probably would not say, right? Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. It sounds like dangerous advice, doesn't it? But then he says, but know that God, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, some people see here a contradiction. How can a young person walk in the ways of their heart and their eyes and enjoy life and think about God's judgment? Wouldn't thinking about God's judgment spoil all the fun? And for the final time, we see Kohelet's use of what we call dialectic teaching. This is common in wisdom literature. We've seen it throughout this book. So what he's doing is he's bringing together two seemingly contradictory ideas to bring out a new idea, a third way. What is the third way? Well, Kohelet is recommending here not guilty pleasures, but godly pleasures. And those are the best kinds of pleasures. He is showing us that by God's design, we will enjoy life most when we fear Him and keep His commandments. For many years, we lived on 47th and Center in the city of Milwaukee. And if you've, if you've lived in, the, in Milwaukee, you know that the backyards are really small. And so all the kids come out and they play on the front yard. And, and, and the front yard is just this one big, long playground for most kids. And so we lived there for many years, and we had a couple of neighbors down, two houses down. They had three kids, three boys. And the youngest boy was about uh, five years old, and, and the kid was fast. I mean, you just watched him run, and he just would zip around. He was always running. And the mom always told him, don't run in the street. And sure enough, one night we were out there. I was out there with my two oldest girls. I saw him out of the corner of my eye. He was running, and then he darted out in the street. The van was coming, and... Bam, the van hit him. Thankfully, he wasn't going very fast. He stopped, but the kid was, you know, knocked down on the, he was knocked down unconscious onto the street. Ambulance came. Uh, he, he survived, obviously, but uh, they weren't sure whether there was going to be long-term brain damage. And so I took the opportunity to pull my daughters close to me, and I said, girls, this is why dad doesn't want you to run in the street. I love you. I care about you. There's nothing good in the street. You don't need it. And that's what God's doing for us. When he tells us not to do something, he's saying don't run in the street. God's commands are not meant to steal our joy. Rather, they are to increase our joy to its fullest. Jesus made this very, very clear in John 15, 9 through 11, when he said this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. 
if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Couldn't get any clearer, right? It took me a long time to figure this out. As a young man, I was a Christian. I avoided the party scene with the sex and drugs and alcohol and, and all of that stuff, but I thought I was missing out on something. I thought I was missing out on the fun stuff. And it wasn't until I was in my early 20s when, I, when the light bulb came on and I realized I wasn't missing out on anything. In fact, God was protecting me from being run over in the street. He was showing me the best and most joyful path is following him in his word. This is how we remove vexation, as he says in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and pain. The word pain here is literally the word evil. Remove evil from your body. Trust in the Lord and keep his commandments. Avoid sin. This is the way to maximum joy in life. Proverbs 3, 7 and 8 says this most clearly. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. If you're young here this morning, I hope that you take these words to heart. May God impress these words on you so that you can set your direction to remember your creator. That's the final thing he says here in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in your youth. Now, this word remember is a powerful word, and it includes response and action. My wife wants me to remember our anniversary. It doesn't just mean that I'm supposed to remember it in my mind, right? It means I'm to remember it, to take some action, and to do something special for her on our anniversary. And so that's what it means to remember our creator. We have a creator. We have a designer. He knows how best we work. As we remember this, we take action and look for him and for his instructions on how best to function. To remember our creator is to honor him at the center of our life. To trust that he knows how we can best live this life. It's the height of foolishness to think that we can just forget about God and that everything's going to go great. That's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. This is set you out on a foolish pathway. And it is this futility of life that pushes us to God and reminds us that apart from him, we have nothing that is good. But when we know God, we know what it means to experience his gift of life and joy even when we are engulfed in futility. This is how we find God's gift of joy in the puzzling and frustrating havel of life under the sun before we die. It's by remembering our Creator. Before, notice what he says. He says three times, before, before, before. In fact, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7 is one long sentence. The main idea is remember your Creator before the evil days come and the years draw nigh, which you say, I, will have, I have no pleasure in them. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In these verses, Kohelet begins to paint a picture of the body breaking down as it prepares for death. 
It's an interesting picture there in verse 2. The clouds return after the rain. Usually the clouds go away after the rain. For most of life, troubles and illnesses are temporary setbacks, not disasters. The sky eventually clears. In the final stretch, however, there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again, and time will no longer heal but kill. And so Kohelet begins to paint this picture in verses 3 to 4 of a grand and glorious house in decline. Notice verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. I think we're meant to see failing eyes and ears and teeth and limbs as our grand house begins to decline. Like the most intrinsic works of art are shattered, so the masterpiece of the human body is also, in the end, is crushed. Notice verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And then he says, the dust returns to the earth. This is a reminder of God's words in Genesis chapter 3 when God said, from dust you have come and to dust you shall return. Reminds us of God's judgment upon humanity because of our rebellion. And then finally, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The breath of life was always God's to give, and it is God's to take away. If there is any hope beyond the sun, it is only with the giver of this breath, of this life. And so Kohelet ends this book where he began it in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, Havel of Havels, says Kohelet, all is Havel. So although Kohelet has held out the possibility of experiencing God's gift of joy in the midst of this Havel and vanity of life, there is something about death that for him has the final word. He loves life and the opportunities it holds to know and enjoy God and all his gifts, but death brings a disaster and an end to it all. This leaves him frustrated and puzzled. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he ends his words with. There must be something more. We have to remember, as I've been reminding us throughout this series, he was writing B.C. He was writing before Christ. Without Christ, the human story ends in death. There was not yet, when he was writing this, the, the light and the glory of resurrection and eternal life that we have in Jesus. And so Kohelet closes his book about life with, Remember your Creator before you die. But we have a new mandate from Jesus. Jesus teaches us not just to remember our Creator before we die, but remember the death of our Creator that gives us life. For in His death, the chains of death have been broken and the hope of eternal life has been opened up before us. So as we end the words of Kohela today, let us remember the death of our Creator, which changes our story 
So that death is not the final word, as it was in Ecclesiastes. But there is a sure hope of resurrection. And so that's why we want to end today by coming to the communion table. Not just to remember our Creator before we die, but to remember our Creator who has died for us. And that's what he says. He uses this strong and powerful word, remember. Just like Kohala said, remember your Creator. Jesus says, remember me. Remember my body, remember my blood, which was given for you.